You are listening to Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Emilio Wale. And I'm Madhumita Santana. Welcome to Generation Justice. We would like to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. Equitable access to vaccinations and information about illness is more important than ever as we continue to live in the deadly and disabling global pandemic. With that in mind, we hear about the vaccine equity efforts that the Presbyterian Community Health is participating in to better address vaccine hesitancy and COVID-19. And we're joined by Street Safe to shed light on their impactful work and their commitment to protecting and honoring folks on the street. Stay tuned for these incredible and thoroughly informative interviews. We also have some great opportunities for civic engagement and getting involved in our community with our community calendar. Let's start the night off with Mother by Sugarland. This song is about just how deep a mother's love is. What might cause vaccine hesitancy, and how can we work to better understand vaccine equity in our state? Tonight, we hear from the manager of the CDC Racial and Ethnic Approaches for Community Health and Partnering for Vaccine Equity, Anna Rutins. Anna works with Presbyterian Community Health, and tonight she shares the resources they offer in order to address vaccine needs within our community. She also speaks on the importance of cultural and linguistic sensitivity and receptiveness in approaching vaccine hesitancy and acquiring vaccination knowledge. We hear from Generation Justice's Adriana Cordova, who speaks with Anna Rutens. This is Adriana Cordova with Generation Justice, and I am speaking with Anna Rutens from Presbyterian Community Health. She works as the manager for the CDC Reach Pave program. Reach Pave stands for Racial and Ethnic Approaches for Community Health slash Partnering for Vaccine Equity. Anna grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., but has lived here in Albuquerque since April of 1996. She landed here thanks to the movie Thelma and Louise, which captured her attention at a moment in time when she yearned to discover more about herself and the Western United States. Anna holds a BA from American University in intercultural communication with a concentration in applied cultural anthropology. She's had the opportunity to work live and travel in over 30 countries, including working for the U.S. Peace Corps and Baltics region immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Her love for learning about other cultures and traditions through a lens of humility, service, inclusion, and equity inspires Anna's work and life every day. Anna, welcome to Generation Justice. So wonderful to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to, to meet with you. Of course, I'm so glad that you're here. Please tell us more about yourself. I work for Presbyterian Community Health as the manager for our um, Partnering for Vaccine Equity um, program, which is funded by a Center for Disease Control um, grant called REACH. And that stands for Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health. Um, I've been in this position for a little over two years Um, I was brought on board when the grant received supplemental funding to support COVID vaccine equity efforts. So um, I'm just very, very excited to be here with you. Please tell us more about Presbyterian Community Health and your mission. Ensuring health equity was a priority for Presbyterian and for the state of New Mexico throughout the pandemic. 
For Presbyterian Community Health, which is a department within Presbyterian Healthcare Services, viewing the pandemic through a health equity lens inspired much of what we did from ensuring access to hospital care and vaccines to expanding telehealth. Uh, this focus meant reaching diverse and underserved communities across the state uh, and ensuring that they had access to vaccines as well as educational materials in multiple languages and formats. A part of this effort included, of course, our uh, grant work. Uh, this grant allowed us to uh, focus outreach in Hispanic, Latinx, Native American, and African American Black communities in 14 New Mexico counties and in areas where lower vaccine uptake and higher rates related to COVID and flu infection, hospitalization, and death were present. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing more. I think the work that you and all of Presbyterian Health Services have been doing is super important, especially over the past couple of years when so many people have been in need of um, equitable health service. Um, and why is vaccine equity so important here in New Mexico? We, our demographics consist of people who are underserved and who have been ex historically excluded from um, access to healthcare. Um, we very much rely on a trusted messengers model. Um, and that means you have people um, among them who are regarded as credible sources of information. Um, we were engaging community partners like small nonprofits and then larger groups, partnerships allowed us to gain access um, with, of course, in a very reciprocal manner. We very much listened, entered and approached the work with, um, with humility um, and in order to really support those who were in any way vaccine hesitant. It's, it's great to hear more about uh, why um, our state in particular can really benefit from vaccine equity. I think it's also important to um, mention um, access in different ways. Uh, we are a state that is predominantly rural, mm -hmm. and in some cases, people have to travel far distances to access health care. So um, creating um, methods to reach those pockets of community that um, that you know may not and they may also not have the economic means for getting where they need to be to gain access to healthcare. I think it's very important to remember um, the misinformation and the disinformation that has been prevalent throughout the pandemic. Um, Presbyterian Community Health with this grant um, has um, developed vaccine materials in eight languages. We also had Presbyterian physicians um, that spent and continue to spend a tremendous amount of time providing interviews um, and information through local media and directly to communities. But a critical piece remains representation. So um, we have a fantastic communications department that really um, puts a great deal of effort into identifying medical professionals to speak to audiences who represent the audience they're speaking to. 
of course. And speaking of disinformation, um, how has disinformation affected your work? Oh, it's challenging. Um, you know, I think it's important to approach this work with respect and humility and to understand that uh, your people hold different perspectives and um, they believe that their truth is their truth. But we have encountered um, some individuals in some pockets of community where some of the hesitancy was clearly correlated to conspiracy theories and, um, you know, some thinking that was um, quite interesting to hear. What would your message be to the community regarding health disinformation? I think it's important to consider multiple sources. I realize that that is more difficult to come by these days because of the algorithms in our social media and, and you know, the, the news that we consume. The bottom line in my mind is thinking about our loved ones and um, knowing that, especially at this moment in time, we are still seeing um, 250 deaths related to COVID on a daily basis. Um, the majority of those folks are elderly and immunocompromised. So when we think about losing loved ones and those of us who are listening who have already lost loved ones, you know, what can we do to protect ourselves, our family, and our community? Of course, I, it's extremely important to remember that, you know, these are real people being affected by, you know, by these illnesses that we've been facing, especially COVID-19 over the past couple of years, that these are real people who, you know, had people that loved them that, you know, that are dying and people are losing their loved ones. And it's just important to keep in mind um, and what can you tell us about uh, vaccine opportunities around the states? Yes, that's an excellent question. Um, the New Mexico Department of Health continues to offer COVID vaccination clinics statewide. And you can find that information by going to vaccinenm.org. That's one word, vaccinenm.org and click on the view the vaccine event calendar box. And that offers this really great interface um, where you can plug in any zip code and then find clinics happening in that area on any given date. Um, are there any specific upcoming events or announcements you would like to make? Yes, I'm very excited to talk about two upcoming events that are being organized uh, in partnership with the city of Albuquerque Biopark, the New Mexico Department of Health, Albuquerque Public Schools, and Premier Medical Group. Both of these events are family COVID-19 vaccination clinics. The first is happening on Saturday, May 20th at Tingley Beach in Albuquerque. The second is happening on Saturday, June 10th at the Botanic Garden. The hours are 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Vaccinations are at no cost and available for all ages six months and older. No insurance and no appointments are required and walk-ins are welcome. These clinics are unique in that we are offering two incentives for people receiving a vaccine. The arts and culture family passes are being provided by uh, the biopark. They are valid for one-time group admission for up to four people at each of the following venues. 
the ABQ Biopark Zoo, the ABQ Biopark Aquarium and Botanic Garden, the Albuquerque Museum and the Balloon Museum. And thanks to our CDC funding, a $25 gift card will be available for the first 100 people who receive a vaccine while supplies last. So for more information about these events, please go to abqbiopark.com. Awesome, those sound like such amazing events. Uh, thank you for telling us more. Um, what is the most important message you would like to share with our listeners today? For me, it's important to think about how each of us individually and together collectively can ensure that everyone has what they need to be safe and to be healthy. Sometimes the news in the world is overwhelming. Sometimes the root causes of the disparities we see feel overwhelming and um, possibly you know, difficult to eradicate. And I offer to everyone listening the prompt, what can you do on a very basic, simple level with your family, with your community members, with your neighbors to ensure that all have what they need to be safe and healthy? Thank you so much for sharing. That was beautiful. Um, and as we start to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add? So in June of 2021, Presbyterian Community Health began a series of listening sessions with New Mexicans who were not yet vaccinated or who were um, living closely among people who were not yet vaccinated to understand more about their reasons for hesitancy. And this project was in collaboration with the UNM Prevention Research Center, um, who offers a critical evaluation component to our work. These listening sessions were hosted by our partner organizations. They were trained by UNM uh, Prevention Research Center as facilitators to use a guide that was developed for encouraging conversation about vaccine hesitancy. Some takeaways were um, that among the uh, Spanish speaking, they uh, suggested that we use um, FM, traditional Spanish radio, for conveying PSAs. We had already been translating our materials into Spanish, but we did that with a particular um, sort of lens for these traditional Spanish radio stations. Um, we also learned from the Native American Indigenous um, listening sessions that um, young adults and students were actually being held as um, sort of the trusted messengers about COVID and the pandemic because of the, the information they were learning in school, and they were bringing that home to their communities and to their families. Um, and that was a bit of a shift from um, the more common herd or you know, model where elders are considered the main source for all of all information and wisdom. We learned from listening sessions with African refugees that um, in their home countries, vaccinations were um, given to children from zero to five. Um, and because of um, less access and fewer vaccinations available in their home country, adults were not often vaccinated. So that was an interesting takeaway. 
goes to show that how important it is in vaccine equity to make sure that we are um, listening to the voices of everybody um, and their individual experiences. We recognize the importance of culturally responsive and linguistically appropriate content. Um, but we felt it was very important to um, also prioritize the relationship with our partners, um, always keeping that in the center. So we created a, a very reciprocal sort of flow. The listening sessions were held in the language that was most familiar and comfortable for the participants. Um, the materials, the, the guide for the facilitators was translated into that language and that service was provided by Presbyterian Community Health. The audio recordings were made, of course, with consent from each participant. Um, those were tran translated and transcribed into English. Then ultimately, the reports were translated back into the original language so that our participants could review them each participant in, in each listening session was a subject matter expert. Their lived experience elevated them as such a subject matter experts, and that was a way we could express gratitude. And they were also paid a small stipend for their participation. You know, I think that's such great work. So thank you so much for sharing more about that. It's extremely insightful to hear about. I want to thank you again uh, for joining me today. Uh, for having this conversation with me um, and sharing so much about Presbyterian Health Services um, and your work and your mission and the vaccine equity program that you've been working with. Um, as someone else who is also extremely passionate about vaccine equity, uh, this has just been such an, an extremely insightful um, and awesome learning opportunity for me. So yeah, I, I, I want to thank you so much for joining me and for teaching me something new today. Um, it's just, it's been an honor. Thank you. Addie, thank you, and thank you to your team. Likewise, it's been an honor to be here with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Of course. Um, for Generation Justice, I'm Ariana Cordova. Thank you, Anna Rutins, for sharing about your incredible work and about how disinformation has had a large impact on what you do. I appreciate that you spoke about the need and the importance of vaccine equity in our state. I think it is so crucial that we provide resources like vaccines for our underserved communities here in New Mexico. Anna, I want to thank you for talking to us about the work you've been doing to provide adequate vaccine resources to our New Mexican communities. Thank you for helping communities that are so underrepresented and lack necessary resources. This next song is called Hair Down by Akshara. This song is about breaking free from a world full of expectations as well as the importance of vulnerability and letting your hair down. We'd like to begin this segment by letting our listeners know that we'll be talking about sex work, trafficking, kidnapping, and violence. If this is something you are not in the headspace to hear, please take care of yourselves and join us next week. According to StreetSafe, 1,081 women sell sex daily on the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico. We decided to sit down and speak with StreetSafe, a volunteer-operated nonprofit organization that follows a harm reduction philosophy. They strive to reduce the harmful consequences associated with life on the street. 
They work closely with women who are victims of sex trafficking, homelessness, and addiction. They offer tools for self-defense, build safe spaces for women, participate in street outreach, and provide resources about sex trafficking and addiction to keep our New Mexican communities educated and safe. We speak with Christine Barber, the executive director and co-founder of Street Safe. Here is GJ's Adriana Cordova speaking with her. This is Ariana Cordova with Generation Justice, and I am speaking with Christine Barber, who is the executive director and co-founder of Street Safe New Mexico. In 2009, the bodies of 11 women and girls, all of whom had been selling sex on the street, were discovered buried on the West Mesa in Albuquerque. Most of the victims had actually been missing for more than five years, and local police were aware of their disappearances. However, they never informed the general public. Christine felt the only way to make sure women on the street were never disregarded like that again was to create a nonprofit with a mission to advocate for and with them. And Street Safe was born. Christine, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for being here with me. Uh, please tell us more about yourself. Um, so, um, I am, like you said, the executive director of uh, Street Safe New Mexico. Um, that's a job I've been doing for almost 15 years, um, and I co-founded it with um, Cindy Jaramillo. Um, she was she's the inspiration behind it, and she's there for the day-to-day -day as well. Um, she was on the street um, selling sex, and on the street, the sale of sex is called doing dates. Um, so she was doing dates in the um, late 1990s, when in 1999, she was... Um, uh taken by uh the elephant butte serial killer the the toy box killer david parker ray and brought to his home in um elephant butte um and then held for several days and he was getting ready to kill her when she was able to have this epic escape and uh we met right when the west mesa um cases here in albuquerque were happening in uh 2009 and um she had known that when uh, when David Parker Ray was getting ready to kill her, that if if he had succeeded, that a police report wouldn't have been filed about her being missing for weeks, um, if not months. And that had happened to the 11 West Mesa victims, that most of them did not have a missing person report filed on them for several months. And so that time frame meant that a lot of the information about who took them and when was lost. Um, and so what Cindy said at the time was, was that she just really wanted there to be a nonprofit that paid attention to the women. And so that's what we do. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing more. And I would love to know more about the mission of Street Safe New Mexico. So um, our mission is to really advocate for um, sex trafficking uh, survivors, as well as um, sexual assault victims. Um, and we do this mostly on the street. Um, however, we would kind of help in any area. The area that we try to concentrate on is going to be, um, like I said earlier, women who and men who do dates on the streets because they are so at risk of sexual assault and because 86% of the people, of the women you see on the street on Central doing dates are actually um, current or former trafficking victims. And so that kind of relation to those two things are, it just makes you want to be able to help women who are currently being trafficked as well as those who have gotten out, but just 
if they want help getting off the street or they want anything else that we be there for them? Yeah, of course. Um, I I have to say, I think that the work that you are all doing is it, it's so important and admirable um, to hear about. So thank you. Um, and what are some of the resources that uh, Street Safe offers? So the main thing that we offer is basically what I refer to as the boots on the ground people. So our job is to go out and to onto the street and talk to those uh, people who are doing dates, who have been sexually assaulted and who are at risk of being sexually assaulted. And um, a lot of them end up being homeless. The majority are homeless, but we don't go out with the intention of reaching homeless people. And the majority of the people um, that we help, I would say about 95% are female. So we end up basically helping a lot of women. The main things that we do are um, do our uh, driving outreaches, which we just load up our outreach van with pads, tampons, condoms, you know, all kinds of stuff that we get um, and uh, drive around and stop and talk to any women on the street who are out doing dates. Um, so basically they're doing, they're in the survival sex trade. So they're, they're selling sex in order to get money to pay for what they need to survive. So they sell sex in order to pay for food. They sell sex in order to pay for a motel room. So they're not selling sex to get rich. They're just doing it to survive. So it's survival sex trade. And to make contact with the women, to get to know them and to, to see what their needs are. If along those lines, they decide they want something more, they want to do housing, um, we can help with that. They want to get, um, if we meet a, a woman who has been attacked, uh, has been raped, we will go with her to the sexual assault nurse examiners and stay with her during the process. Um, but one of the main things we do is also hand out our bad guy list. And so that is a, a weekly list that we make that lists all the people on the street who are attacking women. Uh, and the women will come and tell us after they've been attacked. We'll put it down a description. And, and uh, if we if it happened in a car, we'll put a little picture of a, a small car and then hand it back out so the women know who to not approach. Yeah, it's great to hear and, you know, learn more about all these resources that are available to support uh, people who are selling sex on the street, doing dates. We also do a stationary outreach every other week where we just set up in the same location um, and the women know what we're going to be there and they come to us and we have tons of clothing <laughs> for them. And we also have bra, underwear, all kinds of stuff for them. Um, because when you're on the street, um, especially if you're female, you will lose your um, stuff or it'll get thrown away by the city or someone will steal it um, about every week to two weeks. So we'll get someone hooked up with, you know, a whole new great set of clothing and then they're set for about a week and a half and then everything gets thrown away or everything gets stolen and then they have to go through the process again. It is hard, very hard to hang on to things when you're on the street. Yeah, it's it's great to hear about all these different resources and um, I want to thank you guys for offering all of those. What is the largest impact you have seen in your work on the women, the abusers or the police? 86% of the, the women on the street who sell sex, 86% are sex trafficking survivors. So under federal law, they should be treated as a victim. Instead, they're treated as prostitute criminals. So the word prostitute is the legal criminal definition of selling sex. But yet 
under federal law, they're defined as a victim and should not be prosecuted for that. And in fact, can't be. So about a decade ago, the state attorney general's office decided to stop arresting for any prostitution. And instead, their entire goal is to treat everybody they meet um, who does sell sex as a sex trafficking victim, since the vast majority are. That has a, a lot of other agencies have done that already in the federal government. So Homeland Security, FBI, they don't arrest for prostitution. But the, the attorney general's office basically said was, we are going to say that all these other towns and all these other little places around New Mexico, we don't want you arresting for this either because you're arresting people who are victims. Um, we won't do we won't do joint uh, work with you on trafficking if you continue to do this. Well, uh, APD, the Albuquerque Police Department, has kept doing it. Um, they have definitely slowed down. And uh, they used to be, it was closer to like 200 back in 2015 or so, or 300 a year that they would, women a year, they would arrest. I think it was about 20 last year. But they shouldn't be arresting anybody because they're all victims. <laughs> um, and so, but you can see that that is making a huge impact. Now, did we have something to do with that? I like to think that we were so obnoxious um, in meetings that we, and as being part of the human trafficking task force that we helped with that. Um, so I'm gonna pretend like that's true, so. <laughs> and then the other thing that really, that I've been really proud of is that um, for the women on the street, when they will come tell us that, they looked at the bad guy list and they did not get in that car with that guy that they read about on the bad guy list and that's kept them safe. Um, and the biggest compliment I ever got was from a woman who said, on the street, uh, women in um, who are in relationships with men, 53% uh, are in abusive relationships. Violence from the, your partner is very common on the street. Um, one woman who uh, was married and had a violent partner said that he told her that because she comes to our outreach every Friday, he knew that he couldn't continue to beat her up and have the bruises show because we would take care of him and we would, you know, we would get mad at him. And so that's the biggest compliment that I have ever gotten, that we are preventing this horrible man um, from beating his wife because he's scared of us, which I'm glad he is. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for, you know, everything that you do, because these impacts, they're great to hear about. Um, but what are some of the cases specifically that you want the community to know about at this time? I want the community to know that the bad guy list is never getting smaller. It only ever increases. There's only ever more men that we add to that list. Um, the, the majority of, um, of assaults that are on that list, these include kidnappings for several weeks. These include horrific abuses only about uh, six to 12% are ever reported to police. We can change that. That is a changeable thing that if we and APD and the district attorney's office, if we really come together, um, the women have said in a survey we did, the vast majority would report and go, it, go to report it if they could talk to a social worker who did not have the power to arrest them. And so that's, we come together on that. The other thing that I really uh, would like to talk about is the police are too a little too involved in the women's life. It, it has been shown statistically that the more police approach women who do dates, the, the much less safe, the more violent things are for the women. 
So at this point, um, if you are a female or male on the street and you are doing dates, you have a car approaches you and the car pulls up next to you and stops to talk to you in the corner um, and they're on the street and you're kind of standing there. You have about 15 seconds to decide if that person's going to kill you. And that is a literal thing. And the women have to do this anywhere from three to 10 times a day. Decide if that person in the car is going to kill them. Now, 15 seconds is not a lot of time, but this is why they only have 15 seconds, because they can be arrested for solicitation just by being seen leaning over a car and talking to the driver, but the women have to just jump in every car so quickly and they don't have time to judge. If we just stopped arresting them, they would be able to really negotiate and really say, this guy doesn't seem safe. He has a tarp and knives and duct tape in the backseat. I'm not getting in. But if you don't see that, because you, in your 10 seconds you have and you got to jump in the front seat, you're, I mean, you're just that much closer to being killed. You, And we already know that there have been how many serial killers who have attacked women on the streets of Albuquerque. Samuel Little, back in the day, he attacked. In fact, he, uh, the FBI told Cindy that that's who killed Cindy's mom. So her mom was killed by a serial killer. Cindy was almost killed by a serial killer. And that serial killer hunted on our streets. The West Mesa killer hunted on our streets. How much more evidence do we need that these women need to be safe? And to keep them safe, we need to keep, we need to look at them instead of looking at, well, she needs to be arrested for solicitation. Why? What good does that do? What's what's unsafe on the street? It can be fixed but it needs to be fixed by those in law enforcement and those in the district attorney's office, not necessarily. And then once we fix these things and we can more women start reporting after they've been attacked, we then can start arresting all of these serial rapists. So the serial rapists on our list are responsible for 63% of the attacks. If we just got them all off the street and we're like really hardcore and said, no, never again, we are not allowing this in Albuquerque. We're not allowing this in New Mexico. We believe in our women. We trust our women. We want to be there. We want to protect the women on the street. They matter to us. It truly is, you know, horrible to just hear all of these things that happen. I am bashing the command level law enforcement, and I am bashing the laws that are make that allow them to do this. Now, yeah. we have really good relationships with the sex crime department. But I think it's really easy to, to blame patrol officers and stuff. And I will blame patrol officers. They totally have a culture where they will say to the women on the street, if and they they kind of stopped doing this, but it was very common that if a woman who had, was doing a date got um, sexually assaulted and she told a patrol officer, he or she would say, well, what did you think would happen? You deserve it. They would literally tell them that and then not call EMS. That still happens. But the part I'm talking about as far as um, not, uh, not arresting women who are leaning over a car for solicitation and instead protecting the women on the street, that is more than a culture thing. That comes from the top. That comes from the city. That comes from the mayor. That comes from the governor. That comes from the attorney general. Women on the street who do dates have a 7% chance of being killed by a serial killer. You know how much of a chance we have? 0.00007. But, you know, I, I admire, you know, how you talk about these things. Um, I admire that, you know, all the work that you do to combat this.
thank you again, you know, just for being here and being able to talk about this with, with me and, you know, and share more about that with our listeners. The sale of sex or selling sex is very much a gender issue. Mm-hmm. It is uh, it is definitely a female issue. There are 48 words in the English language or words or phrases. There are 48 words or phrases in the English language that refers to or means a woman who sells sex. Do you know how many there are for men? Three. So that just tells you how much of a gender issue this is. And we are choosing as a society to not protect these women based on historical mores and values, based on the criminality in them choosing to use their bodies and as they say, in the most honest way possible to make money. They they own they own their body. They definitely do. They are not, you know, they will tell you this. They're like, I don't sell anything I don't own. I'm selling what I own. I'm not stealing anything. I am doing the most honest thing possible. We have we have created this entire culture to ensure that this is where they're at. Well, what if we change that? What if we said we recognize that this is a historic way that we have treated this this subset of women? What if we instead say, we don't care. What is important is them. These women, they are so amazing. They're awesome. We are, we mourn them when they die. We we cry with them when they when they get hurt. I mean, this is they're amazing. What if we just changed our entire culture to say, instead of judging for that, we actually just were like, who cares? Can we just protect them like everybody else? And all of these laws and all of this whole community wide, we change it. So I know there's people out here listening to this who are in their past have probably used uh, words such as whore, or they'll see someone on the street and they go, oh, look at the hooker, or, you know, like you're wicked hooker clothes or whatever. Every time you use words like that, even completely innocuously, you are furthering that stereotype of them being less than every single time. Instead of saying, okay, she sells sex, technically that makes her a whore, but using the word whore as an insult, you are then in- just saying she is nothing, she's less than. Just don't. That's the most basic thing you can do. And then the second thing that people out there listening can do is if they see something that they believe is sex trafficking, meaning the person, no matter what age, is being forced to go do dates. So someone is making them do dates and collecting all of their money. If they believe they are seeing that, call 911 if they're underage or call 505 get free if you have any questions because they can they can help you you know think through what you see in front of you. Sex trafficking is allowed because we allow this culture of of looking at women who sell sex as less than. There is such a horrible stigma around uh, women who sell sex on the street and who do dates. You know, this horrible stigma that, you know, makes them seem less than human. And I think it is very, very powerful to reframe that and make sure that everyone has the understanding that, yes, these are human beings that deserve to be protected deserve to be, you know, loved and deserve to have people watching out for them. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. You know, it, it's it's extremely emotional and it, it's extremely hard to process in a lot of ways. So I do want to ask, Christine, how do you take care of yourself? A, wh- a while ago, I was an EMT firefighter. Um, I quickly learned that I would go crazy if I didn't accept one fact. 
which was I couldn't change what had happened to my patient before I got there. There was nothing I could do about that. I couldn't change what happened to my patient after I left. There was nothing I could do about that either. But what I could change was the 15 minutes or the 20 minutes that that patient had me there as their caregiver. I could give and I could promise to give 100% in that time. I could do everything that I thought was possible that I could do in that short time. Because I have, that was how I, re, I, I did it for myself, how I, I made myself be okay with being an ENT, that's kind of uh, translated to how I do this. I don't think about what's come before for these women. I don't, I can't worry about what comes next because I will go nuts if I start worrying about what comes next for all of these thousands of women that we work with. All I can do is I can keep myself in my 15 or 20 minutes that when they're in front of me, they've got me and I'm there and I'm, I am attentive. And then I look at my work day the same way for the time that I am there for the eight hours a day or <laughs> 12 hours a day sometimes or 16 hours a day that I am doing my job. They've got me. I'm there. But when I'm not, there's nothing I can do because I can't give every single part of me. There was another EMT thing, um, which was I had a woman yesterday, we were giving out stuff and I didn't realize in one of the bags, there was this, um, this little unicorn llama hybrid Santa weird thing that, and so one of the girls loved it and she pulled it out. And when she started playing with it, it was squeaking. It was the funniest, cutest thing ever. And she just started laughing and laughing and showing everybody else going, look at this crazy thing and squeaking, squeaking, squeaking. <laughs> you know what? It can be really fun. The girls are really, and the women are really amazing, so. Yeah, I think that's just beautiful, you know, making sure that uh, you look out for the um, the happy things, you know, um, looking out for what's good. Where can people find out more about Street Safe New Mexico? Um, they're welcome to go to our website, which is streetsafenewmexico.org. Um, and they're welcome, welcome to check all that out. Um, what is the most important thing you want to make sure that people hear? The women on the streets, they are not prostitute criminals. They are not, they're not criminals. They, they were, most of them come from very broken backgrounds. Most of them don't have a high school education or they dropped out in the, when they were 12. They're not able to go get that job that everyone is. Go get a job at, at you know, uh, Mickey D's or whatever. They can't because by within a year or two, they'll have a couple of misdemeanors because the cops will arrest them for solicitation or whatever. And you can't work, get a misdemeanor if you work at uh, McDonald's. But just to see them, just to see these women and to see them and go, I actually see you as a person. I see that you have individual tastes and individual needs and individual wants and that you are what is important who cares whatever else is going on what is important is you and that because you are amazing and important you deserve everything you deserve to have every benefit in the world so how do we get that to you so don't make jokes when you see a woman walking down central look at her, her hooker outfit look at her she's just a whore don't, if you're a police officer, don't say, if she gets raped, don't say, you deserve it. What did you think would happen? Or start laughing. 
that's really just questioning everything you everything you think you know about women on the street and about selling sex and everything else. Just question everything you think you know about it. I thank you for leaving us with that message. I absolutely agree that that is extremely important. Uh, you know, as we as we wrap up, I I truly want to thank you, Christine, from the bottom of my heart for joining us today and for, you know, being here and having this conversation with me. And I, there was a lot that, um, you know, the work that you're doing is just amazing. And I'm just so grateful that I got the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Well, I really appreciate the invitation, you guys. Thank you so much. And thank you for letting me kind of uh, talk about stuff. Yeah, of course. For Generation Justice, I'm Mariana Cordova. Thank you, Christine Barber. We tend to have a heavy stigma around this topic and providing resources and changing this narrative is extremely important. Your work is very powerful and very much needed to keep our women safe. Thank you, Christine, for sharing about your important work and for helping the women in our community. I admire and appreciate all of the work that Street Safe is doing. We'll hear Independent Woman by Destiny's Child next, a song about celebrating strong, independent women. Welcome to tonight's community calendar. Here are some opportunities for you to get involved and stay civically engaged. If you're a caregiver of an LGBTQIA person, this event is for you. Head to Highland Senior Center this Thursday for caregiving for an LGBT person workshop. This event will help you gain a greater understanding of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community and how best to care for your queer loved ones. This event will take place on Thursday, May 18th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. at Highland Senior Center. The Highland Senior Center is located at 131 Monroe Northeast. You can contact Erin Tarika at erin at familycaregiverandm.org or call 505-494-4021 to register or for more information. Again, you can email Erin Tarika at erin at familycaregiverandm.org or you can call 505 505- 494-4021. Here's another important event to keep you informed and civically engaged. The Albuquerque Human Rights Board is having a board meeting at City Hall on Thursday, May 18th. You can join this informative meeting and discussion from 5 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. at City Hall on the fourth floor at 1 Civic Plaza Northwest or on Zoom. For Zoom details, you can reach Crystal Velarde at 505-768- 4544 or contact cvelarde at cabq.gov if you have any questions. What else do we have coming up? You can attend the Neighborhood Nature Festival and Block Party at Wilson Park. This event is on May 20th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can enjoy a celebration of nature and community with face paint, baletas, live music, bilingual nature storytelling, a bike repair clinic, games, and much more. Wilson Park is located at 6000 Anderson Avenue Southeast. For more information, you can contact Jessica Saplunadjursik at jessica at cabq.gov or call 505-768-4959. You can reach Jessica Saplunadjursik at jessica at cabq.gov or 505-768-4959. 
Call at 505-768-4959. Also on Saturday the 20th, you can attend Mayor Keller's State of the City Address and City Celebration. You can join Mayor Keller in celebrating Albuquerque with food and live entertainment. You can also learn about resources offered by the city and how they're making the city safer and more inclusive. This event will be from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and is located at the Albuquerque Rail Yard on 777 First Street Southwest. You can contact Mayor Keller Invites at cabq.gov or call 505-768-3000 for more information. Again, that's Mayor Keller Invites at cabq.gov or call 505-768-3000. That's all for our community calendar. Tune in next week for more community events. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of information, empowerment, and community health. We'd like to thank our guests, Anna Rutins and Christine Barber, for sharing about their important and impactful work. As well as a thank you to our interviewer, Adriana Cordova. This hour of radio was produced by Roberta Rael and Barbara Ramirez, with production assistance from Sunandita Santanam. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, and follow our playlists on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Gon Alma Health Foundation, the New Mexico Department of Health, Infectious Disease Bureau through the Better Together Program, and Office of School and Adolescent Health. As well as the City of Albuquerque, Race Forward, Media Justice, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D., I'm Madhumita Santanam. And I'm Emilio Wale. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, and stay safe, New Mexico.